0: This is gonna be the best book you ever read. Like, this is your new favorite book.
1: Oh, oh, the internet, man. Oh. Oh. I need to go be to introverted.
2: <laughs> Welcome. To Books in the city. Pod. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Books in the City. I'm Libby.
1: I'm Emily.
3: I'm Becky.
2: I'm Kayla. And we are four friends who met in a book club, and we're now a year old podcast. A year and old. Happy
3: birthday to mm. us. Yeah.
2: <laughs> if you follow us on Instagram, you likely saw all last week how excited we were to be turning one year old. It's crazy. I don't know if, if any of us ever thought we'd,
3: <laughs> we'd get here, <laughs> but yeah. I did. Yeah, yeah, Becky. Did. I thought we did we would. I'm st- I'm still thinking, okay, what are we doing 3 years from now, guys? <laughs> that live show in London. <laughs>
1: Let's
2: go. Yeah.
3: I'm ready. My bags are packed.
1: <laughs> yeah, we're keeping an eye on the listener listens from all around the world, so <laughs> if you want to set your house, let us know. <laughs> world Tour. Like Spice Spice Girls, Spice World. Yeah, That's us. <laughs> Cheetah print and all. Um, yeah, so it was fun to keep track of, like, uh, the book stack challenge that we had posted on Instagram and seeing everyone's comments and shares and, like, their opinions on the podcast and when they found us, like, during quarantine or, like, I listened to this on my internship or while I'm driving or cleaning my kitchen. Like, that was so fun. Um, and as always just like a big thank you to everyone who discovered us whether that was like at the beginning of our journey on this podcast or last week hey welcome we're (laughs) happy you want us around
0: yeah it was so cool to see you guys like post stacks of books that we had recommended and like Everyone wrote the nicest things. I was getting like emotional reading them. Seriously. Like, you know. It was just so cool. So if you don't know what we're talking about, though, we have this challenge that is still going on today. It, The day this episode drops, it's ending on March 9th, where all you have to do is post a stack of books to Instagram with books that we've talked about, recommended, whether you've read them or not. And use the hashtag B A T C turns one with one spelled out. We did not clarify that in the last Mm -hmm. episode and got some questions. And we're (laughs) going to, yeah, classic. We're going to pick a random winner to win our wine glass.
3: Well, um, speaking of the fact that we are one, we thought it would be really fun to reminisce and take a trip down memory lane to. An episode that nobody has ever heard before, (laughs) where we, when we first decided to start this podcast, we ordered one microphone for like $10 off of Amazon, and we got in (laughs) Kayla's tiny bedroom, and we stuck it in the middle of the floor, and we all sat there, and we just hit record. And I mean, we just hit record. You can tell. (laughs) You can tell here also that there are some things that never change, and we have always messed up how we were going to do our intro from day one, so enjoy <laughs> this little clip.
2: Who are you?
1: Hi,
2: I'm, <laughs> I'm Libby. Uh, my handle's, no, we're doing it out at the I end. I don't know.
3: We can do it however we want. Thank you, Jay. It's the first myself.
2: episode. <laughs> I'm Libby. I love books. I'm from Iowa. <laughs>
1: It's it. It's intense. So it's just gonna say my name. Okay. Okay. Hi, I'm Emily.
2: <laughs> Should I do <see> mine again? <laughs> no. <laughs> if um,
1: you want, it sounded so natural. That was very Iowa of you to be like, I'm from Iowa. <laughs> well,
2: it's just I like a distinguishing do, do thing. Too, yeah, it like is a distinguishing. Fun fact. Thing. Let's do. We can do names and then a fun
3: fact. Oh shoot. Sure. Oh, oh fun facts are my nightmare. I know. So it's that's the fun. worst. It's fine.
2: Imagine <laughs> if every intro I said, uh, "I'm Libby. I'm from Iowa."
1: <laughs> like I kind of want to start. <laughs> I think you should.
2: It's pretty
1: on brand. I think you should do it moving forward. Always. Nobody just else says like, their home
3: state. Libby from Iowa. <laughs> There's also a really funny part from that episode that you did not just hear, where Emily <laughs> shares the most interesting fun fact I've ever heard. So. If you're a member of our Yikes. fan club, <laughs> tune in this week because we're going to be releasing some never before heard clips from our unreleased episode. So and make sure you check that out.
2: Some of it might sound familiar, Kayla, cough, cough, from our intro. Like there's little clips and yeah, keep
1: an ear.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder if you guys have ever wondered where those clips came from. Now you'll find out.
1: If you have any suggestions on future intro clips, (laughs) should we, like, season two revamp? Oh, yeah. (gasps)
3: I'm already working on it. Oh, my God. I'm so excited. All right. So should we take a dive into the deep, deep waters (laughs) of the fishbowl?
1: Yes. The calming still waters of the (laughs) fishbowl. So the fish want to know, what is your favorite boy
3: band? Mm. That's an interesting question.
0: Oh, I mean, I'm ready to go. <laughs> okay, let's <laughs> talk out. for an hour. Top three. This isn't exactly a mystery. <laughs> I actually, okay, so I watched the movie Almost Famous last night for the first time. Oh, and I got I know, I know. And I got really emotional because it reminded me of my One Direction days, like, when I tell you that when they were touring was the best time of my life, like my friends and I literally have traveled across the country to go to their shows. And like, I, like, I've met so many friends because of them. Like it's such a big part of my life. But like people who meet me now don't necessarily like know that it's like my Hannah Montana. (laughs) Like,
2: do you get, would you, what's her name? Penny? Is it Penny Lane? Penny Lane. Yeah. Would you be offended? Like I am not a groupie. I am what's her th- whole a band
0: a band-aid well i mean i wasn't like that but i was like thinking about like like there were definitely girls around at the time that like i knew that were kind of like that but like like i've met a few of them like my when they were in new york like my life stopped and it like revolved around <laughs> like one direction or here like my friends and i text each other all the time like it feels like a fever dream because then they just like Really just disappeared, and like it's not the same with their solo music. I obviously still go see them, and like everyone knows I love Harry, but there's like I'll never be able to fully articulate it. But it was the time of my life when One Direction were in their heyday. You said when you were leaving high school, that was when you were following them around. Um, so I started listening to them my senior year of high school, which was 2012, and then I went to school in Rhode Island and I like it was a big deal when they played Madison Square Garden and I like left school for a week to come see them at the garden and then I moved I went to FIT and then I moved to the city so like it was very easy to see them everywhere when was that
2: was it a summer where you like drove cross-country and saw multiple shows what year was was that like when you were in college
0: yeah because we left for that trip on my 21st birthday
2: right okay okay
0: Oh, yeah, cool. it was the summer before my senior year of college. Was that the tail end of One Direction? Well, I mean, I was there for like the whole thing, <laughs> but that was... Like the trip. Zane I mean. wasn't on that tour. Whoa. And then I went, Whoa. I was in Boston for their last show in America and it was like so Aww. emotional. <laughs> like, wow. You caught the 1D farewell? Yeah, and I like literally, there's people that like, i follow on instagram that i just knew them from seeing each other at shows and like <laughs> sometimes i'll like see them in the city and it's like oh hey like we knew each we met at like we met in boston like we met that's here so cool. yeah that's why i had like a very different life <laughs> during one direction but obviously they're my favorite forever Aw, I admire that. I wish, that makes me feel like I missed out on an adventure. Sounds like a fictional story, to be honest. <laughs> it's so yeah. Well, my so one cool. friend wrote, like, in hand-wrote in a notebook, like, all of our crazy stories from Aww. those days. And we, like, always <gasps> say, like, we should, like, publish but... it. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Listeners, would you read that book? <laughs> Let us know.
3: Um, I think my answer is the Jonas Brothers, not, like, currently,
0: They're not a boy band.
3: I'm sorry. Yeah, they are. They
0: are.
1: They're
0: a band of boys. I don't think of them as a boy band.
3: They're a boy band. That's a boy band. Anyway, so my answer (laughs) is the Jonas Brothers. And not currently. I'm not like a big, huge fan now. But back a long time ago, I went to the Ally and AJ concert in Cleveland. And this is so funny to me. Because I, w- I made, like, iron-on t-shirts for Allie and AJ. And it, like... I printed out a picture and put it on the shirt. And then it was lime green, too. Because we were like, they'll be able to see us if we wear lime green. <laughs> Awful. That's our in. Love and it. the Jonas Brothers were opening for Allie and AJ. This is when it when their album It's About Time came out. And we were like, who are these boys, the Jonas Brothers? We just want Allie and AJ to come out already. And then they came... The Jonas Brothers came out and we were like, oh, my God, we're in love with them. And <laughs> they, at the end of their thing, they were like, come over to our merch tent after the show. And if you buy our CD, you can come to our meet and greet. So we went to the meet and greet and they signed my lime green Allie and AJ shirt on the back, which is so hilarious because it has nothing to do with them. But they signed it and it hung up in my bedroom for forever. Nice. Like I framed this lime green T-shirt. Aww. And then Aww. over the years, I got to meet them again from, like, a radio contest and went to every single concert oh, yeah. they had when they came to Cleveland. I didn't follow them around, but...
1: Okay, Humble brags, you guys. Like, <laughs> casually meeting. I, I didn't even get close to the Jonas no. Brothers. I think I saw the back of one of their heads leaving the
3: venue from literally the Well, nosebleeds. the key is, is that, like, you... <laughs> become a fan like right before anybody knows about them then they have those meet and greets that you can go to otherwise like i mm-hmm. wouldn't have been able to see them except for the radio contest which was a total fluke but anyway yeah the jonas brothers is my answer nice. because i was like obsessed like floor-to-ceiling magazine clippings on my walls oh my god like every inch i was obsessed nice. with them and like if they ever saw that they would have who was filed the restraining order
0: <laughs> i had the exact same jonas brothers oh well. i'm saying like all four
3: like even my door was like covered. Yeah, oh I should God. see if
2: there's not just a wall. Oh, I, I hope should you see
3: have if pictures, photos of it. I'm sure. I'm pretty sure I took photos because I was so proud of it. It's probably on my dad's computer. That's intense, Becky. Wait,
1: you skimmed over my question. So Who is at the your time, I, w-
3: I was Nick Jon. Like I was Mrs. Nick Jonas. That was my email address and my like yeah. username for everything. <laughs> Mrs. <laughs> Nick Jonas, yeah,
2: <laughs> at hotmail.com.
3: Yeah, basically. And so yeah, Nick. And my sister's favorite was Kevin because when we met, when we met them the first time, he signed her cast. She had a broken arm, and he was so excited to sign the cast. He was like, "I've never signed a cast before. I've always wanted to. This is like my biggest dream to sign someone's cast." Like he was just so (laughs) nice, and she was so little. So it was just like he was such an angel, and so she was like, "I love Kevin because he signed my cast. He's a sweetheart. I bet, yeah." So. I never was that into Joe. Wild.
1: Uh, Ah. Yeah. I was also, I'm going to go with Jonas Brothers, and here's why I feel like they're a boy band. Because the marketing was whipped up into, like, the, you know, like, the preteen. I think a lot of being a boy band is the amount of adolescent teenagers, preteens, that, are becoming like sexually attractive yeah. to these oh. boys. <laughs> yeah, for sure. That's like the whole appeal of a boy band is like the marketing to like a young female audience. And like in the book Idea of You, they bring that up. It's like it doesn't make it a lesser art form. That's just yeah. how the cookie crumbles. So I definitely had this, and my mom still talks about it this experience, like the traditional boy band experience. Like I went to a Jonas Brothers concert. Brought my mom and, like, my cousin and my friend dressed up. Um, We got the nosebleed seats at the very, very back. Like, there was the covered auditorium. And then there was the grass above the auditorium. And <laughs> I was sitting on the grass, and I was literally, like, "The concerts like that make you feel special when you're all, like, hormonal. Mm-hmm. And I was, like, he's singing to me. Like, they're going to find me in this crowd and, like, whisk me away uh but I was also like a too cool um kid like I was kind of into the basic Disney stuff but I didn't want to like cop to it you know like I liked Lizzie McGuire and like Hannah Montana and the Jonas Brothers but I was like too cool for it so I was like secretly obsessed with Nick Jonas I didn't have the posters oh I didn't realize you were also a
0: Nick girl I
1: think I was the sense I thought he would drop dead of diabetes. Let me tell you, I was worried for his life. (laughs) I was like, people are like
2: donating to him. Like, (laughs) this is it for Nick.
1: Yeah. And I was like, I don't know the way that early Joe was like marketed as he was kind of like a playboy. And I didn't feel like I had a chance with the playboy in my head. I literally had a chance with the Jonas Brothers. I think it's a little late now, but I'll wait. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> was my convinced too. I was like
3: I am going to marry Nick Jonas right. and have his children like that will be happening it was like a solid thing I in never my head. felt
0: like that with them and I think that's why Joe was my favorite because he just made me like laugh so much no
1: I was like we're gonna he's gonna come I'm I'm meant for bigger things and <laughs> I am meant to be but fun fact about the burning up tour um Demi Lovato opened that was like before right before mm. she blew up she was amazing. She's son like, I remember my mom even was traumatized by this whole experience because there was like she couldn't hear for like a week and mm-hmm. a half or something. There were just it was wall to wall, it was like the Beatles. It was wall to wall teenage girls. Wait, they like I'm having deja vu. Did you talk about this in Becky's living room like the first episode we recorded? Oh my god, maybe I I'm think probably you did. repeating myself. I only have one boy band no, obsession. This is not, full circle. I sorry I interrupted, but. Yeah, I think you're right. I might be repeating myself, but a second place goes to NSYNC. I did have like a lot of Early feelings for Justin Timberlake. I'm not proud of them, but his poster was in Shrek too. I loved the Frosted Tips. I was all about their dance moves, and I was just a little too. I was, like, five or something, so I was a little, like, We were
0: pretty young, young when, like, them and Backstreet Boys were big.
1: Yeah, but I was definitely, like, Team NSYNC. Um, I thought they had the best dance moves, and I was really impressed with that. Like the art form of the dance and the baggy so pants. So, everything about them so. is what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> everything about them. I can't wait to hear Libby's answer.
2: Well, it's Dave Matthews' band. Oh. What? <laughs> That's what I'm sticking with. It's like not a boy band, but I wasn't into Backstreet Boys or Insane. I wasn't into Jonas Brothers. And maybe it was like a principal thing because I had a friend in high school who was sounds like kind of like Becky your level of obsession with the Jonas Brothers and with Miley Cyrus like her room was wall to wall and it was like a lot and we like argued about things and I was just like no they suck because you are obsessed with them them. (laughs) yeah but I don't I haven't haven't always a hipster (laughs) I wasn't always a hipster but I would like the music my dad growing up had like a huge impact on my music taste and that's like what I remember the first like band I remember being like oh my god like my dad's playing this music and it's so incredible and and I felt really seen in Lady Bird when she connects with Crash Into Aww. You that song Aww. Crash so, into me. Or me, yeah. That's that's my
3: answer. Sorry, the
2: fish probably was fishing for something else. (laughs) No, that's The fish was
3: fishing for the truth and received it. Maybe more than they wanted to hear. Yeah. Potentially about.
1: Uh, A repetitive truth. uh, It sounds like I only have two anecdotes.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Should we talk about books?
2: Hell yeah. Um, Mine kind of works well with this conversation because it's a YA. Not really Mm. about (laughs) bands at all, but... You know, kind of. Okay, so I'm talking about You Should See Me in a Crown by Leah Johnson. Yeah, it came out in June 2020 and it was such a lovely book. I like, I don't know, I feel like every YA rec I talk about on here, I'm just like, it was so lovely. I loved it, but I really loved it. Before I get into it, just a content warning, there is death of a parent in this book and microaggressions and homophobia. So just keep that in mind. So the main character is this girl, Liz Lighty, and she's just like an awkward, quiet, like unassuming senior. She's growing up in Indiana, and at the beginning of the book, she just found out that she didn't qualify for scholarship for this school of her dreams. It's called Pennington, and she has this whole life plan of like, she was going to go to Pennington, she was going to get out of her small Indiana town, join the orchestra, and become a doctor. but. Without this scholarship, it's, like, not feasible just for her family's financial situation. And so the town where she lives in Indiana is obsessed with prom. It's, like, wild. I I meant to look up if there is a place like this or, or see if this is, like, based on anything. It's, like, in the book, they compare it to that town, the Friday Night Lights town, like, and how they were about okay. football. It's, like, the town revolves around prom and that's also
1: the subject of prom
2: the musical well in indiana i think yeah so i have kind of a thing about that at the end because i did listen to one interview but so like the prom king and queen in this town get a huge scholarship every year because it's like there's like a legacy prom (laughs) thing, and people like donate for scholarships for the king and queen and like pat you know there's like if your parent was a prom on court like you know that factors into like your chance for winning and stuff it's wild so Liz's new plan she kind of wants to like remove the financial stress from her grandparents who she lives with and so she's like okay like this is not me I'm like the quiet wallflower kid but like I need to get on prom court I need to win and get that scholarship because it's like the only way to get into Pennington and her best friend Gabby is This character who's like super tuned into the gossip and she's like she like knows the school in and out they have this like social media platform just for the school where like all this anonymous gossip is like shared and Gabby's like tuned into that so using that platform she Gabby comes up with this like literally I mean it's like a formula for like the rankings and like where she is in what her chances are of getting on court and stuff so she dives in and she's like all right I'm gonna get you on this court we're gonna help you win whatever and the whole prom court process it definitely was not like this at all at my school but it's very wild there's like a campaign period like the month leading up you you have to qualify by like this intricate combination of like your gpa and your community service hours that you have to do specifically for court and like a variety of little like competitions like there's a bake-off bake sale what? that's part of it yeah it's it was really wow. fun to just read about this like silly town that's just like obsessed with prom it was kind <laughs> of like and every wow. like the parents are you know everyone's like involved i truly felt like a low-level political campaign which was fun to read
1: honestly it sounds like they campaigned harder than anyone did for the presidency. feels like yeah
2: it did feel like that when you were reading it so liz is just like okay and here we go i guess and dives in and just like tries her best so there's a lot of personalities obviously like of people trying to get on the court as you can imagine she has this like nemesis named rachel collins who who's running and who's like a legacy queen like her mom was queen or something and there's a bunch of other popular kids like that Liz is not friends with trying to get on court but running for king is this guy Jordan who she used to be really close with growing up but they've kind of like stopped being friends for reasons that are revealed later in the book since the beginning of high school so like that is kind of awkward she's back like in this kind of weird friendship not with um, Jordan and all of these popular kids also trying to get on the court is this new girl who her name's Mac and she and Liz hit it off. I have in my notes eyebrow ra- waggle, but they like become friends and then it seems like, oh, like maybe more. So Liz is like spending more and more time with Mac just through like prom court duties and as friends. And Gabby, her friend who's trying to help her, is kind of like hey the optics of you spending all this time with Mac doesn't look so good because also Mac seems pretty openly queer and Liz isn't super like nobody really knows her sexuality and so this kind of causes a riff obviously between Liz and Gabby and their friendship and it just gets like messy and wild and it's like mostly funny shenanigans but then there's sometimes super real bullying moments and like huge just like racist moments like Rachel's truly (laughs) just a racist um character and like microaggressions because I don't even know if I mentioned this Liz is black but she would be the first uh black kid to win prom queen at the school so the teachers are sort of like hey, you need to be representing, you know, like, this could be huge for you. And she's like, what "Are you? yeah, it's, it's stuff like that. So it gets, it touches on some really real issues, but in the context of this, like, funny, like, wow, everyone here takes prom way too seriously. But then for Liz, like, the stakes actually are high because she needs this scholarship. So that kind of causes rifts between her and Mac, too, when she can't really openly express how she feels about her. I j- I loved it. That's like all I'm going to say. Um I loved the premise of this town. I've already said that, but it's just like silly and fun, but you know like there are places like this where the parents and like the entire school is like so obsessed with this like very silly arbitrary thing. And yeah, I also loved how queerness was handled in the book and like Liz kind of being confident in her sexuality but not feeling a like she needs to just like constantly proclaim it or like be the voice of like the queer black girl at her school. I just thought it was handled really well. And yeah, overall I gave it 4 stars. The the one thing is there's just a lot of like side characters and friends and I felt sometimes confused like I couldn't keep track of who was who and like there were so many people trying to get on court and I was like sometimes just like wait, is this your friend or is that actually your enemy and that got a little tangled up in my mind while I was reading it. But I really want this to be a movie. I feel like it'd be an incredible movie. And yeah, that was You Should See Me in a Crown by Leah Johnson. Oh, sorry. Very fast aside, too, because, Emily, you mentioned Prom the Musical. Mm -hmm. Apparently, so I heard Leah Johnson talking about she took a trip with her mom to New York when she, like, made the deal and sold this book and her and her mom went to prom, the musical, while they were in town. And then right after, oh. she came out to her mom for the first time, and it was just oh like, oh my god, this beautiful. Like, Aww. yeah, it's just I've, I don't know, it was very precious, oh, like wow. that story and her connection to like the musical, and then this book that she wrote, kind of separate from it. But yeah, it was lovely and also great Midwest representation. I I appreciated <laughs> that. <laughs>
3: Becky, what did you read? All right. So I read The Light Between Oceans by M.L. Stedman. It came out in July of 2012. (sighs) This book was a heart wrencher. And with that, I have some content warnings. Death, sexual assault, miscarriage, big content warning for miscarriage, um, and suicidal ideation. So... The Light Between Oceans is about a man called Tom Sherborne. He's uh, he's Australian and he's recently returned from wor- w- I, world, ooh, Whoa. world Whoa. war 1 remix <laughs> 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 Um so anyway, yes, he's returned from World War 1 and he's been forced to do like unspeakable things in the war. And it's changed him forever while he's there. So he's like so, he's a very closed off guy. And as the book opens, he's arriving to Point Potageuse, which is this fictional seat. C- c- I cannot <laughs> oh talk.
1: God. Are you going to start talking in a French accent now?
3: I am um, speaking in a French <laughs> accent with a side of Simlish, apparently. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, anyway, it's a fictional seaside town in Western Australia. And he's come. To this town to take up post as the lighthouse keeper on Janus Rock, which is this little island that's like off the coast of the little town and it houses the lighthouse and nothing else. So he spends the first week or so arriving in town, getting to know the people who are going to be coming by boat out to the lighthouse to give him supplies and mail every couple months. So he's super secluded. There's like not a shop or anything. It's like he's the only soul on that island. So during this time in the town, he meets. Isabel Graysmark who's this like feisty young girl who takes to him right away Um, and they flirt and they spend some time together they have picnics and walks before Tom heads out to the light and then they begin to exchange letters while he's out there and the the letters are brought out like I said every couple months with the supplies so they exchange it that way so this is very slow burn romance that we have happening. So one thing leads to another in these letters and they end up getting married. And it sounds like I'm spoiling, but I'm not. Because that is not even really what this book is about. Having met the Or do they meet Yeah, for a short amount of time. And I should I mean with World War One you can probably place it, but this is in nineteen twenty like two, this portion. So Isabel joins him out on the rock and takes up the position of lighthouse keeper's wife. So this is like super solitary. Remember, they're the only people out there. You know, they explore the island and they fall into what sounded to me like this romantic little life of, you know, alone time all the time. And after some time, they're like, it'll, you know, it'll be great when we have a family and there's more people (laughs) here, basically. But They want to have a baby for they're going to populate
0: the island. (laughs) Kind of. But that's
3: not really it. They just like Isabel desperately wants to be a mom. Like Mm -hmm. she's so excited to be a mom. So they try and they try. And Isabel does everything she can to become pregnant. But unfortunately, she miscarries over and over again. Mm. And it's heartbreaking. And I'm not going to go into the details, but I will warn that it is pretty graphically explained in the book. Both the actual miscarriages and just like the pain that she Mm -hmm. goes through. Physical and emotional. So, she goes into this deep depression. She, like, doesn't want to live. She's mad at herself. She's mad at Tom. She's mad at every, everyone and everything. All she wants is to be a mom. So, one day, while working on the light, Tom sees a distressed fishing boat washing up to the shore of Janus Rock. And in the boat, Tom and Isabel find a dead man oh. and a little baby. The baby <gasps> is alive and only a few months old.
1: Was it Hercules? Oh, my God.
3: No. <laughs> So protocol says that Tom must report the incident and alert the town and say like there's this dead man here and a baby but Isabel sees the situation she's like I keep losing babies all I want is a baby I've been praying for a baby and one a healthy baby girl literally washes up on shore obviously this is a sign from God. So she sees no other solution than keeping the baby and Tom is like We have to report this. It's literally illegal for me not to report this. Like, I'm sworn to uphold these laws as the lighthouse keeper. And this is part of my job to report these kind of things. And he's like, the mom of the baby is probably out there worried sick. And Isabel's like, no mother would leave her baby like that with her dad. Like, go out on a boat. Like, the mom would have come along. She definitely drowned somewhere. Oh, she sounds sad. Like... OK, she doesn't know what happened. No, she doesn't. She's just so desperate to have this baby. So Tom sees how Isabel falls right into motherhood, taking care of this baby while they're figuring out what to do. Like the lights back in her eyes and she's glowing. And of course, Tom is starting to fall for the baby, too, because he's helping out take care of her. So they bury the man on the island and they decide to keep the baby. And they alert. I
1: think at the very least they should have said there was a dead man. Yeah. Yeah. Well, to come back mm-hmm. to haunt
3: them. To them, Literally. they're like nobody else is on this island. Nobody knows that he came. For oh all God. they know, he fell overboard because they pushed the boat back out. You know, so they decide to keep the baby and they alert their family because they haven't told their family yet about the last miscarriage. They say Isabel gave birth to a new baby girl. So this is a more. I'm not going to say anything else. I'm not going to say anything else. But their decision that day and the consequences that come from it will follow them throughout the rest of the book and the rest of their lives and it was so heartbreaking and so beautiful that's stressful it was Aww. so good wow just tell so me if sad. there's that,
1: a ghost like are we going to get a practical magic ghost of this dead guy no
3: it's not a magical okay. story you know there's no ghost um I will say I think this is one of those situations where I would have liked to physically read it over audiobook I listened to this book And the narrator was kind of hard to understand. Like, I couldn't just, like, play it on my phone and, like, walk around. I had to have headphones in because of his accent and his enunciation. But overall, it was so good. It's definitely a slow burn also, so keep that in mind when you pick it up. I gave it four stars. Wow. And what was that? And that was The Light Between Oceans by M.L. Stedman. That sounds really good.
0: That sounds wild. It is.
3: (laughs) Highly recommend. Emily what did you read?
1: Okay I read Passing by <gasps> Nella Larson. I love it's this book. This book. You know that feeling when you like finish a book and it has that oh shit ending and you gotta like walk around the house and like do a lap and like kind of like like have your heads o- your hands over your head and you're like phew that book that's what happened with this reading experience for me, I literally like had to sit down on the computer and type down my thoughts immediately after I finished it. It's got like everything I like in a novel, like complex female characters, set in a pl- well, set in places actually I've lived before because it's in Chicago and Harlem, and the feeling. You know how sometimes I describe books that are like the intimacy of a play, or like reminds me of a play. I got that feeling. With this, and there's a lot of great themes to chew on and dramatic plot twists. It's just so, so good. So, this book was published in 1929 and it's told through the perspective of Irene Redfield, who is a light skinned black woman living an upper middle class life in kind of the golden age of the Harlem Renaissance. It was published in 1929 and the there are some racial slurs and like terminology that was modern at the time that maybe the modern reader would definitely cringe at but it's kind of the point the whole point of the book is interrogating race and racism so I think it's important to keep that in mind. So Irene is visiting Chicago. Um, It's a hot day and she decides to Take tea in a fancy hotel to kind of cool off and this is the kind of place that one would assume maybe a black person would be turned away from, but Irene is fair skinned and nobody really bothers her, so she's able to kind of take tea in this predominantly white fancy place. Um, so while she's here, kinda of hoping no one will really make notice of her, she's enjoying her solitude and a woman approaches her. Like, kind of recognizing her. And obviously, this stresses Irene out a bit because she's like, oh shit, is someone like recognizing me as a black person? Uh, And then the woman is like, hey, I I know you, Irene. And she's like, what? Why? Where would I ever have come across a white woman who would know me with such familiarity or know this like nickname that is familiar to my childhood? And it turns out this uh, white woman is actually Irene's friend, Claire Kendry who has passed and is living life as a white person now. So passing means that you're a fair-skinned black person who can pass or live as a white individual. This is a similar topic that was addressed in The Vanishing Half, but obviously a much older book, and the title of the book, actually. So Irina is kind of like talking to Claire, catching up, and she's both attracted to and unsettled by Claire's decision. Uh, And honestly, the descriptions here get a little bit, like, sapphic. I think they were a little homoerotic. And ultimately, Irene is unsettled by this fact that, like, Claire is making this dangerous decision. There are, like, serious consequences to her life actions. And Irene is like, okay, I don't think it's good that I see this person anymore. I think her life choices don't necessarily agree with mine. And I don't really want to continue with this friendship that Claire is insisting upon. Like, hey, we should catch up and like really reconnect, you know, like we're childhood friends. And although she was initially hesitant, Irene decides that she can't stay away forever and they meet up again, go and take some fancy tea and run into actually this other woman from their friend's circle growing up called Gertrude, who has married a white man. So... In this first trio, like this first dynamic was really interesting because you have one woman who could pass but is choosing to live life in the Black community. You have another woman who has passed and then Gertrude who is living in an interracial marriage. And it's a really interesting conversation to begin with about kind of the motivations behind passing. And usually that stems from some type of like personal or financial gain because when you pass as white there's a lot more financial opportunities to you like less doors slammed in your face that's just the facts of racism but this choice comes with consequences and sacrifices like the ability to kind of sever this relationship with your personal identity and your upbringing And we're reminded of these consequences when something very dramatic happens. I, like, gasped out loud. I actually started annotating my book here because I was like, what (laughs) the? And this is when Claire's husband joins the party. In this room with three black women, the reader very quickly discovers that Claire has not only married a white person, but in fact has married an openly racist white man. He actually is so comfortable with his racism, you know, because he thinks he's, like, in the presence of other white people, right? Uh, The pet name he uses for Claire is actually a racial slur. And he thinks it's super funny to call her this racial slur because he thinks she's white. And all the women are sitting there, like, like, scared shitless and also livid that this man is living, like, such a brazen, like, he's wearing his brazen racism on his sleeve and the dramatic irony here was like so powerful just like a textbook case of literally the definition of irony because you as a reader you're just like oh my gosh and you know something that like one of the characters doesn't know it was very i i was like clutching my pearls it was such a <laughs> good scene so the book is actually broken up into three sections all revolving around this encounter with a passing character so the first section is called the Encounter, then there's Reencounter and Finale. It's a very short book. Really, like, the overarching theme is this dangerously kind of, like, selfish decision on the part of Claire to live her life in a way that's incongruous with the rest of the world around her. And she kind of ropes Irene and a lot of other characters into the wake of that decision. The back of my book describes this as a powerful, thrilling, and tragic tale about the fluidity of racial identity that continues to resonate today, and honestly, I couldn't have said it better myself. (laughs) I was just like, found myself reflecting on a lot of things while reading this, but mostly on how our relationship with race is both how we perceive ourselves and how others see us. And, like, naturally, those two things are at odds because you can't control what people think about you and what other people think about you informs how you see yourself. So, I was just thinking that, like, literally race, you know, like, the phrase is tossed around a lot about race being a social construct, but this book does a really good job highlighting that. Like, it literally doesn't make sense. Like, how how do you define, like, race as a category if in one moment you're perceived as black but another moment you're perceived as white and really it's like sometimes your choice and it's very hard to put people into like a binary category of things it reminded me of like I don't know if you ever actually you should listen to Trevor Noah's memoir called so good yeah really really good and he talks about how literally in South Africa apartheid made no legal lawful sense it was very like hard to enforce and on top of all these like big picture ideas of race, the inner personal relationships are like so juicy and it's really the mixture of these things together that make it really magical for me because sometimes when I meet, read modern books that are very much like about race, big question, you know, big quotation marks, it can feel a little bit like a textbook sometimes and it's really good to remember that like It's a social identity that impacts everything about your life. So I liked that it was like a macro and micro discussion of something that's still really relatable today. And Irene and Claire are like really, really cool characters. Like Irene seems like a bit of a wallflower and we know that she's really insightful because we're in her mind the whole time. And the way that they wrote the dialogue was, or, like, her inner monologue was super cool because it was, like, it's still, like, reflection in prose, but there were these, like, discoveries that were, like, wait, is this happening? And it was just really effective. And Claire repeatedly describes herself as someone selfish enough to get whatever she wants, whatever the cost. And I love characters like that, especially women characters, because it's very, I, I don't come across them very often, like, the just genuinely selfish woman who you still like you want good things to happen to her like you don't want anything bad to happen to Claire but you're just like girl what are you doing the setting is in 1920s Harlem which is just like a great time to read about just the poetry the dancers the wealthy middle class black people who are like flourishing and pushing boundaries of art and culture that was really like This time period was called the Harlem Renaissance for a reason. And they kind of critique, I mean, this was written of the time. So they critique this practice of white people coming from downtown to go uptown and, like, sample black culture. And I thought it was cool to just get that, like, in writing. (laughs) You know, like, how did people in this time period, like, people of this community, how did they feel about that? The ending was remarkable. Like, possibly the best Last lines of a novel I've ever read. Kayla, don't read the last lines first. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Because we get the drama and like the inner workings of a marriage. It kind of reminded me also of like A Doll's House by I don't know if you ever saw the play, but it's by like Ibsen and it's also kind of a similar vibe like somebody trapped in a marriage or feeling trapped or it's just really, really good. I could go on obviously forever. I never. But my last thought was like, damn, books are like these weird little time machines (laughs) because it's literally 100 years later and it was such a surreal experience to still connect to so many aspects of it. It's one of my new favorite classic novels and I'm so frustrated (laughs) with the American education system for many reasons, but also because I had to read like fucking Heart of Darkness or like Great Gatsby over this book. And I just feel like you could get at a lot of those themes by reading Passing over, like, a lot of those other classics. It's really approachable for, like, the hesitant reader of a classic book because the language is super modern. Like, the footnotes were really helpful. The themes are, like, explicitly discussed in the dialogue. So I'm not pulling, like, really profound thoughts here. (laughs) Like, I'm literally just, like, they talk about it. In black and white, like it's on the page. And um there's just so much to chew on in the history is very, very cool. Like the there's a lot about this time period, specifically like the Harlem Renaissance experience that I just didn't know a lot about. So in yeah. And also the nineteen twenties, which at least one person on hey, this podcast. Becky. <laughs> Did you say twenties? <laughs> the nineteen twenties. Yeah, you could tell they were, like, going to dances, dressing up as flappers. It was good Love times. It. Or not. Um, Five stars, obviously. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I'm obsessed. It was really good. What is that book? Uh, Passing by Nella Larson. Kayla, what did you read?
0: Okay, I read Sparks Like Stars by Nadia Hashimi. This just came out recently. Thank you to William Morrow for sending it to me. Quick content warning for the book, Death of an entire family and PTSD that goes into like being in the sole survivor of a horrible incident. So the story starts in Afghanistan in nineteen seventy-eight and you know when you like see like you'll see on Twitter sometimes like those old pictures of Afghanistan and like the women are in mini skirts and they didn't have to wear headscarves and all and it was like very modern. This is that time period. So our main character is Sitara, she's ten years old Her father is a close advisor to who became the first president of Afghanistan, and she spends, like, all of her time at the palace. She's best friends with the president's grandkids, and she's really in tune to, like, the politics and, like, watching everything happen, and her and her dad are really close. A quick little history lesson. This all happens during the Cold War, and both America and Russia were kind of courting Afghanistan and trying to sway them to their side. So very early on in the book, the Sour Revolution happens, And I'm pretty sure it's pronounced sour because there was like something in the book about that. But I, I honestly could be wrong. And this was a coup where the Communist Party took over and they murdered the president and his entire family. And then now a new Soviet-backed regime rose up. So I'm going to call it the coup as I go through this because that's how it's referred to in the book. So Sitara and her family are in the palace when the coup happens and by some miracle she manages to get out and she is the sole survivor from her family and one of the only survivors from this whole like days long horrible event and they do kind of go into detail about it and it was like like my heart was beating so fast like the way that like the writing is so strong you felt like you were in there and you're also in a child's perspective so it was like it was just so emotional so the book Is split like evenly into two parts. The first 200 pages covers the weeks leading up to the coup, the coup itself, and then the immediate aftermath, where now she, because of who her family is, she's like an enemy to the state in Afghanistan and she's 10 years old and she needs to escape the country. So you go through that whole journey with her, and I'm really not, I don't want to like spoil anything because it was just like so amazing and like heartbreaking, but like I just don't want to give any of it away. Like you should read that without knowing anything but then part two opens up 30 years later and it's 2008 and satara is now a successful doctor living in new york city and one day she goes into a patient's room and it's someone from her past in afghanistan and this opens up all of the doors that she had forced shut to like her trauma and like questions she's always had about her family that she thought she would never get answers to but now she kind of sees a way to find things out So you eventually end up traveling back to Afghanistan with her as she looks for closure and more answers. And it was also interesting during this timeline because like it kind of part one ends a bit abruptly as she's 10 years old. And then all of a sudden it's 30 years later. So the way that her narrative is it kind of like she'll mention things about like the intervening years. And she talks a lot about what it was like to live in new york during and immediately after 9-11 as an afghani woman and those stories were actually based on the author's own experiences and i like it was just so interesting and like sad to read like what she had to go through
1: practicing muslim like is she actively religious that's like a
0: big it's a big part so her family like wasn't super religious in afghanistan and then she came here and didn't end up with a muslim family so like she's just like kind of not religious and that is something that she touches on during like the whole 9-11 part okay so it's really all i can say for plot and i know i'm being super vague but like i i really don't want to give anything away because this story is like so like i, I almost want to say like fantastic even though it's not like a happy thing i feel like that word is connotated with that but it's just like you're reading it like this is like wild and like things like this actually happened to people it was stunning i was sucked in right away like I could have read this whole book in one night, but I started it so late and I was like, I don't want to be a zombie at work the next day. Like I couldn't put it down. I like needed to know what Sitara, like what was going to happen to her. But one of my favorite things was how the author wove Afghani history through the book. So I've spoken about this on here before, but Middle Eastern history is so complex. And I think sometimes in books you're dropped in and I have to do like a bit of Googling along the way. So you're not lost but she explained everything so thoroughly wove it in seamlessly i it didn't even feel like reading a textbook and i didn't have to google anything for clarification because she just like it was almost like you were learning the history along with Tatara because she was away from her like home country for so long and yeah this is like one of those stories that I know will stay with me. I loved it so much. I was shocked. Like I haven't seen it really anywhere on bookstagram. I was talking to two other people who have read it and we were both, we were all like, why aren't people talking about this book? And I was like, I'm covering this on the podcast to get it off more people's radars. Like, it's just like stunning and like a story of survival and family and found family and like confronting your past traumas. And yeah, I loved it so much. It was obviously a five-star read wait is is Satara based on a real
2: person in his like was her family an advisor to the so it's
0: kind of it, it's touched on in the author's note like her dad wasn't an actual real person but it's based on somebody who was what, yeah okay. like things that actually happened during the coup and like the president in the book is the real president who was like murdered and ousted
2: wow it sounds so good
0: yeah it kind of reminded me a bit of how i felt when i read um a thousand splendid sons like back in high school it's for some reason these middle eastern stories like resonate with me in a they like hit me harder than other stories do i don't know what it is like i just get so sucked in and i'm like so i don't know i just get so lost in them and i think they're like just stunning, really, and like about survival and women and what women go through over there and like how strong they are. And yeah, it was five stars, like I said. And that was Ooh, Sparks that. Like Stars by Nadia Hashimi.
3: What are you gonna read next, Kayla?
0: Okay, well, I wrote this before I, s- and then I ended up starting it. And it's Surviving Savannah by Patty Callahan. And I texted Becky and I was like, dude, this book is so good. So yeah, off to a great start on that. <laughs> nice. Libby, what's next? I'm going to read
2: Sex and Rage by Eve Babbitt. Becky, what about you?
3: Um, I'm going to read The Vietri Project by Nicola D'Arobertas-Thai. Emily, what's up next for you?
1: Uh, I want to pick up Nella Larson's other book called Quicksand. I think it would be good. good. (laughs) (laughs) I am. No. You all right there, pal? (laughs) That's like an excited, uh, couldn't hold it back. Where you? Where do
3: you live on the interweb? Um,
1: I have one foot in my lazy library account. <laughs> Been neglecting it lately, but I'm at the lazy library. What about you, Becky?
3: I'm at Becky in the bookshelves.
1: <laughs> Shelves. Are you okay. drunk? Be good, bro. No. <laughs> <laughs> Fell off chair.
0: I'm at Becky in the bookshelves. I'm at sleep, run, read, repeat. I'm at What, and you can find all of us at Books in the City Pod. Make sure you're using our hashtag, mybooksinthecity. Whenever you're posting something that we inspire you to read, you have one day left if you're listening on release day to get your one-year stock in with BATC Turns 1. Follow us on Twitter at BATCPod, like our Facebook page, Books in the City Pod. Please leave a review and follow or subscribe, whatever you have to do on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. Join the fan club. Lots of fun things happening there.
3: Thank you to our Carrie level producers, Diane Worth, Riley Harrell, Carrie Kissinger, Brenna Collins, Amanda Borgia, um, Elizabeth Jamka, and Susie Southwick.
2: Thanks Woo. for listening for a year or two. If you have been, yeah.
0: Woo. Or a week.